sociopolitical issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Hello and welcome to episode 44 of You Don't Have to Yell, released in a year when everyone says this couldn't possibly get any worse. And then next week says, hold my beer. Now, before I get started into this week's episode, I'd be entirely tone deaf if I didn't acknowledge the recent unrest breaking out in cities across the country over the murder of George Floyd while in police custody. And I have friends in law enforcement, and I also have friends who see themselves and or their loved ones in the faces of the all too many black men who've been killed simply for going about their lives while black. And my friends in law enforcement have very publicly condemned the recent killing of George Floyd on social media, as well as those responsible for it. And I don't know if it's sad or not sad, but my friends of color have largely been quiet. And it's more because they've come accustomed to being browbeaten by white people when trying to explain the problems of structural racism in this country. And I was lucky enough back in February to interview a series of academics on the history of structural racism uh, for Black History Month. And I'm going to be republishing those episodes on Facebook and Twitter over the next few days. So keep an eye out for them. You know, the problem of racism in this country isn't going to be rooted out without white people gaining an understanding and really a respect of the long history of racist ideology in this country and really in the North and South American continents. And I think those episodes are a really good start, if I do say so myself. Now, also, I'm going to be releasing a bonus episode over the next few days on the wholesale terribleness that is 2020 and what we can do about it. So if you haven't subscribed already, do that so you can be privy to it. And with that out of the way, we talked about redistricting on a nationwide level a few weeks back with Dan Vicuña from Common Cause. And this week, we're going to focus on North Carolina, which was a state that got my attention when I started this podcast uh, as having a 50-50 partisan split in the popular vote in the 2018 midterms, yet somehow 75% of the congressional delegation is Republican. So what gives? Well, I invited Mitch Kokai, senior political analyst for the John Locke Foundation, who is part of the organization's effort to reform North Carolina's redistricting process for both state and federal legislative districts. And it's a process that includes a number of delights, such as parties going to court to overturn congressional maps they drew and creatively shaped districts with nicknames such as the snake. Per usual, you're going to need to listen on to find out about that one, but I will be back at the end. You're from Ohio originally, correct? Yes. Okay. Yep, Columbus. Got it. Oh, Columbus. Okay. Yeah. I, my, uh, my in-laws uh, used to live out in Columbus, and so I spent a lot of time oh, out there. Okay. Yeah. They lived in German Village. So. Uh, yeah. I know exactly yeah. Where, where that is. Yep. And now, I was in German Village, uh, I guess, last December. Oh, got it. Got it. Yeah. It's a great area. It's a, it's a wonderful area. And especially like when you live in Boston and you're paying through the nose for a house that you could like, you know, where you can hit your neighbor with a broomstick and then you go out to Columbus. It's, it's just every now and then just to torture myself, I Zillow what I could get for my money in Columbus. And it's, uh, and, and North Carolina for that matter, they're both equally torturous. So, and, and yeah. now, so did you start your career in Columbus then, or, or was it in North Carolina? Uh, in North Carolina, I uh, did some internships in Columbus because I was home for the summer. But um, but yeah, I started my career. First job out of college was at a little radio station in Whiteville, North Carolina. Okay. And then within a little more than a year, moved back to the Triangle, the Raleigh area. Okay, got it. And, got I, it. and I've been there ever since. Okay, understood. Understood. And now, so your official capacity now is with the John Locke Foundation. Is that correct? Yes. Got yes, it. I am. An official title is senior political analyst. Got it. But I'm often the, the media spokesman. So the, the spokesman or of John Locke Foundation, any of those work. Got it. 
Got it. And does the John Locke Foundation, do they have any position on redistricting and congressional districts or, or not so much? That's just your own sort of expertise. No, actually, it is an organizational position to support redistricting reform for North Carolina, both for our legislative districts and the congressional districts, even more so for state legislative districts than congressional districts, because it's state legislators who draw both. Uh-huh. And uh, it's bad enough that they draw congressional districts, but it's worse that they draw their own districts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would, I would agree with you there. And now in, I guess maybe just to help me and help the folks who are listening kind of understand the, the makeup of, of, of North Carolina. So in terms of the state legislature, how many, how many seats are there in in the state legislature? We have a total of 170. Okay. There are 120 in the North Carolina House of Representatives and 50 in the state Senate. And unlike the situation that you see in Congress, mm-hmm. every one of those seats in the North Carolina General Assembly is up every two years. Okay. So there's, uh, you, you get the advantage in the Senate of only having to convince 25 other people rather than having to convince 60 other people. Mm-hmm. But, uh, still you're up for election every two years. Okay. Understood. What's, what exactly is wrong with North Carolina's congressional map right now, or what needs to be fixed? Well, that actually is a a matter of contention. Mm -hmm. Uh, What I would say is that from my perspective, it's less the congressional map and more the process that led to the congressional map. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at the latest version of the congressional map, the one that has resulted after all of the litigation, just looking at it, there are very few places where you say, hmm, something is wrong here. It actually looks pretty good mm-hmm. in terms of how it stacks up, uh, in terms of compactness, the keeping counties together, the lines being very squiggly. Uh, If you look back at the maps that were in play in the 1990s and 2000s and the early maps in this decade, you'd look at them and say, yeah, there's quite a bit of gerrymandering going on here. Why are there districts that just kind of snake along and don't seem to be very wide and go across many, many counties rather than trying to keep them compact? The current map in terms of just using the eyeball test doesn't look too bad. Mm-hmm. Now, what what really needs to be changed, though, is the process. And the process is that state lawmakers, and this ends up being the party that's in power, whether it was the Democrats up through the 2000s and now the Republicans since mm-hmm. the, the, the 2010 election, they get to draw the maps. And they draw their own maps for the state legislature, plus they draw the congressional map. And we have seen in the last two uh, cycles of drawing the congressional map that the uh, party in power has drawn maps in a way that help their own people who are in the legislature who would like to get into Congress. And I can give you a couple of examples. In 2000, after that census, so when legislators came back in 2001 to draw the new congressional map, the head of the state Senate redistricting committee was a senator from Raleigh, a Democrat named Brad Miller. He helped draw the congressional map in such a way that our brand new 13th district was one that a politician sitting right where he was would have a very good chance of winning, and he mm-hmm. did. And he served in Congress for 10 years. By the time of the next official census-derived redistricting, not ones that had to happen because of litigation, but the one that had to take place because of the census, Republicans were in charge, and they drastically redrew that district so that Brad Miller couldn't win. Mm-hmm. And he didn't even tr- he didn't even try. He he saw that the handwriting was on the wall that he couldn't win in a newly redrawn North Carolina 13th district. He toyed with the idea of 
running in a neighboring district, but the incumbent Democrat in that district said, I'm not going anywhere. So he just basically retired. Now, at the same time, the Republicans drew the new congressional map in a way that Brad Miller couldn't win his district. They redrew the congressional district that had traditionally been in the southeastern part of the state in such a way that it stretched further into central North Carolina, encompassing a fairly conservative county not too far from Raleigh. And the reason they did that was that a Republican state senator named David Rouser wanted to run for Congress. Mm-hmm. So they drew the district to make it favorable for him, uh, not only angering Democrats who had held that southeastern district seat, but angering some activist Republicans who were hoping that one of their favorites in the southeastern North Carolina area was going to be able to take on the incumbent Democrat. And because of the way that the district was drawn, their favorite from the Wilmington area lost to this state Senator David Rouser in the primary. Uh, That fall election, Rouser did not win over the incumbent Democrat, but he only lost by a handful of votes. And the next time around in 2004, or I should, uh, excuse me, in 2014, uh, the, the congressman who had been in that district for a long time, he had seen the handwriting on the wall and he decided not to run for re-election. David Rouser won for a run, ran for a second time and this time did win. So uh, in both cases, in the case of Brad Miller, and in the case of David Rouser, although it, it took him two times, legislators were able to draw districts so that their favored candidate could win. Mm-hmm. And the John Locke Foundation, in pursuing redistricting reform, has bought into this idea that the voters should elect their representatives. Voter, The representatives should not be selecting their voters. Yeah, that's a novel concept, huh? Because uh, yeah. it, it seems to me the process as I see it, and in and I should state for the record, I'm in Massachusetts where there is no redistricting controversy because the Democratic Party has kind of rigged everything in their favor for years and years and years. So there's never a contest as to whether this state is going to go blue. Um, right. But it seems like in North Carolina, the process is a little different. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but just to sum it up, it sounds like the party in power carves districts to stack the deck in their favor. The Both parties sign off on the redistricting, but then the other party cries foul and then it's litigated until it changes power and then it's districted or redistricted in favor of whatever the new party in power is. Does that more or less sum it up or? You get it pretty well, right? I would uh, not say that the, the minority party goes along with the redistricting. Okay. Uh, most of our, most of our redistricting plans over the years have been passed on a pretty partisan basis. Now that's not universal. There are, Uh, this is probably less true in this decade, but it certainly was true when the Democrats were in charge in the past. There were some Republicans who might openly say, well, this is a bad redistricting plan. And when they're in the back room, say to their Democratic friends, well, thanks for drawing me a a good safe district. Uh, They couldn't, they couldn't come out and say that they supported (laughs) it, but because, but because the party in power, was trying to dilute the strength of the minority party. Mm-hmm. One way to do that is to make the districts that the minority party can win very safe districts for them. I mean, this is one of the things that's been interesting about North Carolina is that one of the things that we have had to face, which I don't think you would have to face up in uh, in the Boston area, is we've had to draw districts for years and years uh, that that require compliance with the Voting Rights Act because of North Carolina's long and sad history of disenfranchising African American voters. Sure. Certainly, you know, during the, the era of slavery, they didn't even have any chance to vote, mm-hmm. and even after that, for for decades and decades, up through at least the mid 1960s, uh, the the Democrats who were in charge of state government found ways to keep. Uh, African-Americans from voting, or if they uh, did have a chance to vote, there were ways to help dilute their power. So 
one of the things that's had to have been done, and this really started playing a major role in the 1990s, was that whoever drew the districts had to start drawing majority-minority districts, districts that would give minorities an opportunity to elect the candidate of their choice. Mm-hmm. Now, this you might say, okay, well, African-Americans tend to vote for Democrats, so this should be a good thing for Democrats. Well, not necessarily. Uh, the way that, uh, that, that this has played out is that if you draw a district to uh, help minorities elect the candidate of their choice, and you go with sort of the, the basic idea of, okay, if this is going to be a majority-minority district, the district has to have at least 50% minorities. Mm-hmm. That concentrates a lot of African-American voters in a particular district, and you know, by consequence, that concentrates a lot of Democrats in a particular district. That makes all of the other districts a little bit more Republican. And Republicans have seen an advantage in that. There's a, there's a very good example of this from back in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. And the, after the 1990 census, North Carolina gained its 12th congressional district. And Democrats came forward with a plan to have 12 uh, districts and it would help Democrats win as many of them as possible. Republicans went to the George H.W. Bush Justice Department and said, oh, I I should back up and say this was the first time that North Carolina had to draw a congressional district that would help uh, ensure that minorities could select the candidate of their choice. Mm -hmm. So the obvious choice to do that was the northeastern part of the state. There's a a pretty good concentration of African-American voters there. So the first congressional district was drawn in such a way that it would be a majority minority district. Republicans went to the uh, Bush, George H.W. Bush Justice Department and said, look, the population of North Carolina is such that we really ought to have among our 12 congressional districts two majority minority districts. And some people who haven't looked at this very closely might say, well, why would Republicans want to do that? Why would they want to guarantee that Democrats could win two districts? Well, the the short answer is you make two very Democratic districts, that'll make the rest of the districts more Republican. And Mm -hmm. so that has been that for 20 years with from the 1990s through the 2000s was sort of the strategy. Republicans wanted more and more majority-minority districts, both among our legislative districts and among the congressional districts. Democrats uh, tried to get to that standard by having districts that had less than 50% of majority, uh, 50% minorities. And they said to themselves, okay, well, let's see if we can get by by having 35 or 36 or 38% minorities. And we'll throw in enough other white Democrats that the minorities and white Democrats together would have more than 50%. We'll call it a coalition district. And that will uh, that will satisfy the federal regulators who tell us that we have to comply with the Voting Rights Act. That is uh, interesting. And, yeah, and and it led to court cases over and over again. Our our districts have been litigated pretty much throughout the decade, in the 1990s, in the 2000s, and again in the past decade, the 2010s. That now we're going to have another census this year, so we'll, we'll likely have another round. But uh, the, the litigation because of the Voting Rights Act districts has been never ending. Um, and one of the outcomes of all of this fight over majority minority districts has been probably one of the ugliest and most clearly gerrymandered districts in the U.S. in recent memory, and that was North Carolina's old 12th congressional district. Mm -hmm. This was first drawn by Democrats in the early 1990s so they could have a second 
majority minority district. As I, as I mentioned earlier, the first district in the northeastern part of the state uh, it was drawn in some respects kind of an odd way, but the, the general idea of having a district in the northeastern part of the state that would be majority minority district, that sort of made sense. The 12th district made no sense in terms of uh, being compact and trying to have communities of interest together. The original version of it, and this will make less sense for, for people who don't know North Carolina geography, but if they look at a map after our conversation, they'll, they'll get this. The original district stretched from Durham to Gastonia, which is about oh, a three-hour drive, and it looked like a snake. It, it, it I-85 connects those two cities, and basically the district looked like I-85. Yep. And there were some spots in the district in which it basically was I-85. If you were in your car <laughs> and you got out of the driver's side door, you'd be in one district. If you got out of the passenger side door, you'd be in another district. Yeah. And it was, it was, and so that district uh, was the result of Democrats trying to comply with the federal mandate to have two majority minority districts while also still being able to win as many of the other districts as possible. Republicans fought it, but to no avail. And in fact, the Republicans, when they got their first chance to draw the congressional map in 2011, they kept that district because they said, well, you know, the courts have upheld this district, as crazy as it may be. I think they they erred a little bit in the sense that uh, they packed more Democrats into that district than had been in before. And I think if they had made the African-American population just over 50%, they might have had a stronger case to keep that district. As it was, they made it something like 52, 53%, more than they needed to, but they were trying to help dilute Democrat votes in other uh, in other districts so that Republicans will ha would have a better chance to win. But the, the Republicans ended up paying the price for that district because the Democrats who had used those districts for 20 years complained in court about the 12th district being racially gerrymandered when it was their own party that had drawn the district in the first place 20 years earlier. So that's just one of the bizarre facts about our, our congressional districts. Yeah, there's well, there's the whole saying, politics makes strange, strange bedfellows. And I can't think of anything that defies the popular narrative more than Republicans taking the case to court that a <laughs> that 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 number one that a district is does not have enough African Americans in it, or the Democrats would go to court against it, which is again right. not something you hear in popular discussion. So I, I know you mentioned you know one of the things that kind of keeps coming up as you're talking about districts is compactness is important. Um, right. What are some of the other things that makes make like a quote unquote good district? Well, I think compactness is a key contiguity. I mean, I don't think you see any districts that, that really defy this uh, to, to a great extent anymore, but certainly you wouldn't want districts that are separate or only connect in a single point. I mean, you mm -hmm. want them to look look sort, sort of normal. I mean, yeah. <laughs> look at the map and you see weird tentacles stretching off here and there. You think, well, why is that the way it is? I mean, you asked earlier about what's wrong with the North Carolina congressional map. And our current map, if you look at it, the, for the most part, the places where it looks kind of bizarre is because of county lines. Okay. Or, uh, or if, if it's not the county line, it's because of the way the population is distributed. I mean, we, we have two counties of our 100 counties that have enough population that you can fit an entire congressional district within them. And the mm -hmm. current map does that. Mecklenburg County, where Charlotte's located. Wake County, where Raleigh's located. Both of them have a single congressional district in the county. There is one other set of two counties where two counties together could make a congressional district. Uh, and that is the sixth district that has Guilford County, Greensboro, and much of uh, Forsyth County, which is Winston-Salem. Mm -hmm. That happens. Every other district in North Carolina, 
you have to combine multiple counties to get to the the proper population. And so basically, you either go east to west, west to east, or north to south, south to north, or some combination to get all the counties together to do that. And if you look at our map and you know where Wake and Mecklenburg and Guilford and Forsyth counties are and where those districts are spelled out, then you look at the rest of the districts and say, okay, well, kind of makes sense the way they did this. And you keep counties together in that map. And then if you see where there is a, a county dividing line, you might say, okay, well, you know, uh, this is kind of squiggly here. I wonder why they did that. Sometimes it's because of a natural boundary. Sometimes it's politics, but it's it's not something that's so egregious that you say, wait a minute, no one could ever conceivably come up with this plan except for gerrymandering. One of the problems in our gerrymandering debate here, and this is actually true in many other states beyond just North Carolina, is that geographic districting now, and I don't know that this has always been true, but this is certainly true now, geographic districting favors Republicans. I'll show you Hmm. by just a brief example how that's true in North Carolina. Look at the 2016 presidential election. Throw out the third-party candidates because they just sort of muddy the water here. And you look at Donald Trump versus Hillary Clinton. If you throw out all third-party candidates, Trump beats Clinton in North Carolina 52% to 48%. Mm -hmm. Those aren't the real percentages. It was something like 48 to 45 or something like that. But just head-to-head, it's Trump 52 to 48 we have 100 counties. So how many counties would you think that Donald Trump would have won? If, it, if, if everyone was distributed equally across the state, Democrats and Republicans, you say, oh, okay, well, maybe he wins 52 counties. Maybe he wins 51. Maybe he wins 55. You know, something like that. Mm-hmm. But somewhere in that range. Trump wins 74 of the 100 counties. Mm-hmm. And the reason, the reason that's true is because Democrats in our state, and this is true in many states, are uh, clustered more closely together, largely in cities. And so districts that are drawn by geography will tend to have districts in which Democrats win their districts with pretty big margins. Republicans who are more equally dispersed across the state will win more districts, but win them by smaller margins. Now, if you're planning to gerrymander, that's the exact same thing you're going to do. Mm-hmm. You try to win as many districts as you can with a little bit smaller margin and force your opposing party to run in districts in which they're going to win their own districts with big margins and uh, have a harder time winning other districts. So the, the, the way the geography plays out is also the same thing that you would use for gerrymandering. So it's it's very clear that our Republican-led General Assembly gerrymandered districts. But if they hadn't gerrymandered districts, they probably would have still had the natural geographic advantage. And that's why in this last election in 2018, after they were forced to redraw the congressional map and forced to redraw legislative maps, uh, Republicans still ended up winning a majority. They didn't win the super majorities in the legislature they would need to overturn a, uh, or override a gubernatorial veto, but they still won uh, the majority of the congressional seats and they still won the uh, 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 majority of the legislative seats because they had a natural geographic advantage. So that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons why uh, it, it's not easy to look at the results of the elections and say, well, Republicans won a bunch of seats. They must have gerrymandered. Well, they did gerrymander, but that's not the entire reason why they won a bunch of seats. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I was one of the guests on this show. Uh, recently was a congressional candidate for Texas, the 11th district. Texas is an 11th congressional district. And this congressional district is about twice the size of Massachusetts in area. 
So I think it's something like, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's an, I mean, it, it's like an eight hour drive across the whole district, one congressman. Wow. Meanwhile, we fit nine in, in our little state. Um, but the interesting thing that was coming out in, in my conversation with him, and something I've thought for a long time, is that uh, I think the, the divide that you see in, in, the, in the U.S. Uh, to date, or the current divide, in a lot of cases is very much urban and rural. And, and I think part of it is because these communities want different things out of government. What a city wants or a suburb wants or, uh, again, a rural area wants are going to be vastly different. And has that ever been factored into the redistricting process or not so much? No. Uh, the idea of the urban versus rural concerns is certainly something that plays out in North Carolina. We've seen that uh, come to a head more often in recent years than it did in the past. Back mm-hmm. when North Carolina was still largely a rural state, it did make a, a big difference. But yeah. but certainly the rural versus urban concerns do play out more now. I think uh, the reason that that doesn't play a major role in redistricting is that there are so many rules that uh, guide how redistricting has to be done that you that you can't in this state that you can't really either over sample or over uh, benefit rural to the disadvantage of urban or vice versa mm. uh, partly because one of the things that our rules call for is not splitting counties any more than you have to mm-hmm. that was an actually a, an old strategy under the democrats was have a lot of districts that started in an urban core and have them stretch out into rural counties so the Democrats would win them, but you dilute Republican votes in those rural counties. Mm-hmm. Now, a county like Mecklenburg that has Charlotte or a county like Wake that has Raleigh, you have to confine your districts within those counties. And so the the strategy at least in this past decade, now that Republicans have had a chance to draw districts is the Republicans want to maximize their advantage in rural areas and minimize the damage in urban areas. And the Democrats want exactly the reverse, Mm -hmm. maximize their advantages in the urban areas and minimize the damage in rural areas. So, so that's something that's, that's going to be interesting uh, moving forward. What's up players. I hope you're enjoying the show, and for those of you who've listened to this podcast before, you know what I'm about to ask. Now, independents comprise the largest voting bloc in the United States, and despite the fact that almost 60% of the population would like to choose from more than the two major parties, our first-past-the-post system prevents that from happening. To change that, we need more people like you to come into the conversation so we can affect change on a state-by-state basis. So I'm going to ask a few things of you. Number one, share YDHTY with everyone you know, or at least the folks you think who would find it interesting. All you need to do is click on your phone somewhere and do it. I don't know exactly where. The Big Gino told me to or how, and I totally forgot that part. But, you know, it's your phone. You can figure it out. Uh, Number two, If you like YDHTY, write a review wherever you get your podcasts. I want more people like you to know about this and to take part in the conversation. Now, lastly, if you haven't already, subscribe. We've got a bonus episode coming up. It's easy to do on your phone by doing something that I also forgot how to instruct you to do. And with that, back to Mitch Kokai. One of the reasons I'm I'm particularly interested in North Carolina too is because of the variance in the popular vote to representation. So if you look, yeah. uh, the midterm elections, I think it was 50-50 Democrat-Republican, uh, there is a, I think, a 25% advantage in representation right now in the House Um for Republicans. So obviously, you know, I look at that and I say, okay, this is a little bit disproportionate. Am I, is that, is that observation wrong headed or is there some 
justifiable reason why that would be the case. Well, I think you you are on the right track. I, there is a combination when Republicans have in our current congressional uh, delegation ten of the thirteen seats. Part of that is gerrymandering. Part of it is also the natural geographic advantage. Now, I should say that all of the predictions this time around are that Republicans in this election, you know, and uh, who knows if if what happens with the pandemic and mm-hmm. uh, President Trump uh, changes things. But going into the pandemic, the expectation was Democrats, because of the newly drawn congressional map, were going to pick up two seats. Okay. So uh, most most everyone expects that, uh, barring any major change because of what we've seen in recent months, and if you know if President Trump looks like he's totally tanking this, and and people have a Democratic wave, you could change this. But the prediction was that the new congressional lineup would be eight. Republicans and five Democrats. Now, to put this in perspective, it's interesting to note that several years ago, uh, the group Common Cause worked with some faculty at Duke University's Sanford School for Public Policy and some retired North Carolina Supreme Court justices, bipartisan group, to come up with what they were determining to be a fair congressional map. This was uh, several years ago. Their their fair congressional map, which didn't quite meet the parameters they would have to meet to to comply with federal law because they had some variation in population that would not have been allowed to comply with the federal law. But it was was a, a, a fairly good approximation of what you could do to try to get a fair map. They ended up with six Republican districts, mm-hmm. four Democratic districts, and three toss-up districts. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you would look at the normal course of business without any sort of major wave one way or the other, that means that the districts could swing anywhere from seven to six in Democrats' favor to nine to four in Republicans' favor. Let's okay. say the Republicans win win all six of their Republican districts and they get all three of the toss-up districts, that would be nine to four. Ten to three, of course, is a a little bit more uh, skewed than that, but not a lot more skewed. Uh, So if if a group that is left of center working with a bipartisan group of judges and a group of academics comes up with a map that says, you know, a fair representation would be anywhere from a bare advantage to Democrats to a fairly substantial advantage for Republicans. You got to think that Republicans do have a, a in, in a normal standard year, a pretty good chance of winning the districts, which goes back to my earlier point that uh, there's a geographic advantage for Republicans. And that's one thing that courts haven't always recognized that you know there there is gerrymandering involved but is there excessive unconstitutional gerrymandering that's been an open debate uh republicans of course are wanting to maximize their advantage which is one of the reasons why neither republicans nor democrats in the legislature should be drawing the districts but you know it, it, based on the constitutional standards that they were following going into the redistricting process the, the 10 to 3 outcome was not that far from what a fair map would have given them. Yeah. And I mean, I would also say if there are three toss-up districts, I would say that's probably healthier for democracy overall, because now you have two parties that are effectively doing what they should be doing and having a battle of ideas uh, rather than a consolidation of power. Uh, in my mind, I don't know if you have any comment there. Yeah, the only thing that that I would say about that is one of the problems with um, the, the debate about redistricting reform, and this is something that was brought out in the past year in a really good paper by uh, uh, Char- I believe it's Charles Blahouse is his name with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, is that when people start looking 
at the political outcomes and saying that this is evidence of gerrymandering, they're kind of missing the point. Mm -hmm. Gerrymandering is bad because it uh, stretches out districts and, and puts together people who really don't have anything in common uh, just for the sake of helping a political party. If you have the, the most well-designed districts imaginable, that they're compact, that counties that should go together go together, and you end up with a skew either toward the Republicans or toward the Democrats, well, that's kind of the way that the geographic districting goes. Now, I know that one of your interesting points you want to bring up is proportional representation. We can yeah. get to that yeah, in, in due time. But if you're going to be doing geographic districts, the districts should look normal, and that should be the standard. The standard shouldn't be, well, Republicans won 10 of the 13 congressional districts. That must mean gerrymandering, and we should try to draw districts to elect more Democrats. Well, to do that in North Carolina, you're going to have to engage in gerrymandering of another type. You're going to have to sort of skew the districts so that Democrats have a chance. Uh, the, the problem is, if you wanted to have 13 toss-up districts, well, how about in a year when it's very uh, advantageous for Republicans? They could win all 13. Mm -hmm. Or a year that's very advantageous for Democrats. They could win all 13. If you decide we want to have a safe number of districts for this party and a safe number of districts for the other party and then a certain number of toss-up districts, that's gerrymandering of its own kind. You're, you're kind of <laughs> setting it up. So that so that so that a particular party will win a particular district, it's better to just under the system we have. If we're going to keep it, draw the districts in such a way. And you you asked earlier about some of the standards that should be in place: compactness, contiguity. Another thing, and this is not something that North Carolina has adopted, but it should, is. Uh, in addition to not having lawmakers draw their own districts, don't allow dis the, the districting process to take any account of party representation, party affiliation, uh, where incumbents live, where potential challengers live. Take all that information out. And in North Carolina, this is also important, take out any evidence of how previous elections have gone because party registration in the state doesn't give you an accurate uh, representation of how the elections will actually go. We still have enough people who are nominally Democrats but vote Republican that the, the Democratic registration numbers are higher than the actual Democratic vote total. So, mm. uh, you know, a district that may look like it's uh, – favoring Democrats by four or five points may actually be a, a fairly safe Republican district. So, so you want to look instead of at uh, party affiliation at the way voters have voted in previous elections. If you're trying to get a sense of how a district might turn out from a partisan basis. But my point is when you're drawing the districts, none of that information should come into play. It should just be, all right, what, let's have compact districts. Let's have them meet the population requirements. Let's not take any account of where any incumbent lives or any known challenger. Uh, and let, let's see where the chips fall at that point. I think if you take out the incumbency protection angle, that's going to do a whole lot to help deal with the, the issue of gerrymandering. And that's something that North Carolina could do if it moves forward with redistricting reform. You'd also mentioned, obviously, my interest in proportional representation and and if we're going to keep the system this way. Uh, is there a reason the idea of proportional representation, that is, you know, a party's, a party's allocation to Congress equals the percentage of the popular vote, is there a reason something like that just wouldn't work? Is it just historical precedent or is there some reason that's been crossed off the list permanently? Well, as a concept, that whether proportional representation would be a good idea is one discussion point. Mm -hmm. Another is, could you do it? And under our current system, you couldn't. 
Mm. I mean, uh, the, the, the way that the system was set up under our constitution, it's geographic districts and federal courts have said, we don't have proportional representation in the United States, which is one of the reasons why people who have been fighting partisan gerrymandering as opposed to racial gerrymandering, those who have fought partisan gerrymandering in courts for years and years have tried to come up with statistical ways to do to meet their goals without calling it proportional representation. Mm-hmm. You may have in discussing this sort of things like the um, uh, the efficiency gap and some of these other yep. uh, statistical models. All of that is basically trying to get to proportional representation without calling it proportional representation. And the reason that's true is because the courts have said we don't have proportional representation. Okay. So, the, so, so the current system does not allow for proportional representation. If you wanted to have proportional representation, you'd have to have a constitutional amendment to do it. Now that, so, so that's, so that's one argument. Then, the, then mm-hmm. the second piece is, is proportional representation a good idea? Uh, I, I think there's a trade-off. I mean, obviously, if you have proportional representation, you're going to get a better sense from a statewide perspective of how the, the people would want their congressional delegation to be split. The likelihood based on where we see proportional representation in other countries is that you would have more parties emerge and you would be more likely to end up with a government that has, instead of two parties competing with their coalitions of somewhat linked but somewhat disparate people, you'd have a bunch of other smaller parties and you'd have to have coalition governments because uh, the the current system that we have is uh, amenable to two parties competing with each other. If you have proportional representation, that makes it easier for a smaller party that can get two or three percent but can't win any particular district. Their two or three percent will still get them some seats in the legislative body, and so that way uh, it makes it it makes for a stronger representation of smaller parties and you know there are pros and cons of having that if you look at any of those european countries where it's hard for them to come up with a government because it's hard for the party that wins the plurality to get enough of the other parties together with them Uh, and then there are parties where are countries where it's worked relatively well i think there would be trade-offs it would certainly be different than the system that we have now yeah, I think there's, with what we have, I think there's strengths and there's weaknesses. And the one strength is that it's, is that our decision is binary. I mean, if you right. look, you know, if you look at even the the presidential election is the clearest example of this where, um, you know, if things are going well, the incumbent party gets reelected. If they're not, they usually get voted out. And it's, it's very much on or off. So it's really not a matter of necessarily, n- like dogma necessarily. Um, the, the flip side of that, and, and I think- the, the, and, the coalition, and the coalition building takes place within the party. True. The, both the Democratic and Republican parties have to come up with enough people who will help them get to 50% plus one uh, in the places that tend to use proportional representation the coalition building doesn't have to take place until after the election. Yes. Once, once the election's done, unless a party wins a clear majority, and you know, remember, don't look at Great Britain as an example, because even though they have multiple parties, they have a first-past-the-post system like ours. Mm-hmm. You have to think of more continental European countries where your party is never going to win in a geographic district but, you know, look throughout the country, you might be able to get one or two percent. That's enough to get you a few seats in in uh, in your parliament. And depending on what the plurality party wins, that may get you a seat at the table and a chance to uh, help uh, get policy to your liking. So, uh, yeah, there, there are definitely pros and cons with with both ways of going about it. But the the, the crux of the matter on proportional representation is 
our current system doesn't allow for it. And if we really wanted it, we would have to have a constitutional amendment to do it. Got now, it. some people may may tell you otherwise, but and, and I'm not a lawyer, so uh, maybe a constitutional <laughs> or election lawyer will come back and say, yeah. "Now he's all wet." Uh, that you know we could do it this way. But the the way that I've seen it, and the way that it's been told to me by people who do know this stuff very well, is you couldn't do it under our current system. If you wanted it, you'd have to change the constitution. Understood. Well, we should we should issue that disclaimer that nothing said on this podcast should be misconstrued as legal advice before anyone gets themselves into trouble. Um, but I, I, yeah, I, 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 you know, and I think that it's an it's an interesting segue to the to the whole issue of of how this is played out in the courts because uh, it, it seems to me what we've what we've seen recently is a case where a lot of these redistricting battles are sent to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court, in many cases, has sort of raised their hands and said, well, it's not the duty of the federal government or it's not the, the federal government doesn't have the power. This is a state issue. Um, and and it is, I guess, is taking this, given the amount of power the Constitution gives the states to allocate uh, congressional districts or to draw congressional districts, is is taking are all the efforts to take this to the federal level misguided like are they effectively going down a dead end street taking that route or is there some legal precedent for why the federal government might intervene yeah it's a good question and in fact the supreme court made a fairly definitive statement about this in the in the past year there are differences between challenges uh, based on racial gerrymandering and those based on partisan gerrymandering, or as I'd like to say, gerrymandering, because <laughs> the partisan is, is, is sort of redundant. Racial gerrymandering cases are still going to go to the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, well, are, are still going to go to the courts, and uh, uh, many of them will end up in the Supreme Court. And that's because uh, the, the Supreme Court has set very they they change the rules as things go along, and many times it's a North Carolina case that helps change the rules. Mm-hmm. But there is a standard that you you can't discriminate against an African American voter, or the same could be applied to any other a distinct minority group. And so, redistricting plans that look as if they are based on some sort of racial bias or or racial animus are going to end up going back to the courts and the Supreme Court, I assume, because they've never really given a, a great red line or a bright line test of what works and what doesn't. Supreme Court's going to continue to deal with these cases until finally they say, look, here's the bright line. If you do this, you're fine. If you don't do this, uh, then you're, you're going to lose. Until that happens, racial gerrymandering cases will go there. Now, the partisan gerrymandering is now effectively done in federal uh, courts because of the Supreme Court's ruling in a North Carolina case. And that was, uh, in a 5-4 case, the justices said, look, this is a political issue. The courts cannot determine what is an unconstitutional level of gerrymandering. It's just not something federal courts are equipped to do. the reason that this was even an issue in the federal courts was that at some time back in the 1960s, the Supreme Court opened the door to the possibility that gerrymandering, which has been with us the entire history of the country, James Madison, the father of our Constitution, was almost gerrymandered out of a seat in the first Congress. Mm-hmm. You're in Massachusetts, which created the name of gerrymandering because yep. it was a it was the Massachusetts governor, Elbridge Gerry, who, who did the first official gerrymander, the one that looked like a salamander. But the, it wasn't until the 1960s that the Supreme Court suggested that there was a possibility that gerrymandering that had no racial component but was just based on partisanship could be so egregious that it would be unconstitutional. The problem was even though the Supreme Court opened that door, it didn't really set a standard. It said, 
Uh, it's, it's possible, but these particular cases that have come to us haven't given us any standard that would allow us to strike down a gerrymandering plan as too partisan. Mm. Well, back in the mid-2000s, I believe this was a Pennsylvania case, you ended up with a 5-4 split on one of these partisan gerrymandering cases. Four of the justices, and you would consider them the, the justices at the time who were the liberal bloc, said partisan gerrymandering is unconstitutional. We need to strike it down. We agree with the arguments that the plaintiffs in this case have made. Four of the justices, and you'd consider them the ones at the time who were the conservative bloc, said, no, this is a political question. We can't do anything about it. We should never take up another partisan gerrymandering case. One swing vote in the middle, Anthony Kennedy, Mm -hmm. sided with the liberal bloc in saying that, yes, some level of partisan gerrymandering could be unconstitutional. He sided with the conservative bloc, though, in saying the plaintiffs in this case have not put forward a standard that would help us strike down a a redistricting plan as unconstitutionally gerrymandering. So after that, for the next decade, redistricting reformers and anti-gerrymandering people tried to come up with a standard that would convince Anthony Kennedy. That's one of the reasons why you heard about the efficiency gap and some of these other measures is that they were all designed to get Anthony Kennedy to go along with the liberal bloc. Mm -hmm. Well, once Kennedy retired and Brett Kavanaugh came onto the Supreme Court, that changed the calculus. And it was once Kavanaugh was on board that the Supreme Court had a solid five vote saying, no, federal courts can't take this up. It's a political question. Now, interestingly enough, Chief Justice Roberts, who wrote that decision, didn't say that gerrymandering is a good thing or that no one could do anything about it. What he said was that if the federal government was going to do anything about it, it had to be Congress. He said, you know, Congress was uh, initially empowered by the Constitution to do something about this because the states oversee the details of the elections, but Congress can make changes if it wants to. So Congress can oversee and and make those changes. And he says, you know, that's in his decision, that is the proper venue to go to to get a federal change, have Congress change the law. And he also said state states can deal with this and state courts. And he he, uh, singled out as a particular example, the Florida Supreme Court, because Florida had within its state constitution a particular provision that banned uh, excessive gerrymandering, and the Florida Supreme Court had struck down maps as excessively partisan gerrymandered. And uh, Chief Justice Roberts said, no, here's an example of how the states can deal with this. This is why in North Carolina, when our uh, maps were struck down, and well, yeah, our, our congressional map and also our legislative map, the last time they were struck down, it was under our state constitution rather than the federal constitution because the people who wanted to change the maps realized they're not going to get any help from the federal courts anymore on a partisan gerrymandering claim. They mm-hmm. have to use the state constitution. So, yeah, so to, to, to end this long winded answer to your original question, <laughs> going to the federal courts is not going to be possible anymore on just strict partisan gerrymandering cases, only on racial gerrymandering. Action's going to have to happen on the state level for people to get any changes. Understood. Understood. And so really the takeaway from all this, uh, I think, is that the congressional district as it stands is the system we're going to be working with here. There are safeguards in place to, for example, prevent racial discrimination in the case of districts. But along partisan lines, this is a battle that's really always going to be fought or always going to at, at least need to be watched in some way or another. Is that right? That's right. Certainly, as long as the political partisans are in charge of writing the maps, which probably brings us to a a good point here. 
what the John Locke Foundation has been arguing for, and I certainly support this, is take the process out of the hands of the legislators. We've really argued from a North Carolina perspective that the key thing to do is to put really good rules in place that limit whoever is drawing the maps. Because mm-hmm. we've had proposals either to set up an independent redistricting commission, which has its own issues, or to put this in the hands of nonpartisan legislative staff to draw the, the maps. Uh, whoever does it, you ought to have good, solid rules in place that limit what they can do so that uh, the, one of the terms I like to use is limit the map-making mischief. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, you, if you force them to draw compact, contiguous districts, take out all political information, take out the information about where incumbents live, take out the information about how people in these districts have voted in previous elections, and then the only other thing that you would throw in there besides the, the good standards for compactness and contiguity would be anything that you have to have to comply with the, the federal law and federal court rulings. So if we have to draw majority-minority districts, you make sure you do that. But uh, otherwise, have some good, solid rules in place. Make sure that whoever's drawing the maps draws the maps and not have it be the legislators themselves. You're going to solve a lot of the problem by doing that. Good rules and uh, making sure that legislators aren't drawing their own maps. That's going to solve a lot of the problem. One of the possible advantages in North Carolina of all the litigation that we've had and the fact that we are such a purple state is that we're only going to get reform in this state when the party in power is afraid that it might not have power after the next redistricting. Mm-hmm. Democrats should have Democrats should have made this change near the end of the 2000s. They didn't. They thought they were going to keep power. They didn't keep power. And so Republicans stuck it to the Democrats in the same way Democrats had had stuck it to the Republicans. Uh, Republicans would be well advised at this point to say, you know, we might not have power uh, come the next redistricting. We should put some rules in place that make sure that we at least get some sort of seat at the table or that Democrats, if they're in charge, don't get to uh, do things that disadvantage us as much as we disadvantage them and they disadvantaged us years ago. So uh, redistricting reform can make a difference. You would probably get to a situation where our congressional map will likely be uh, less likely to be something like 10-3 in any party's favor, but more 7-6-8-5, maybe in a wavier and occasional 9-4. But it's going to take redistricting reform to help that happen. So we heard a lot of echoes of my conversation with Dan Vicuña of Common Cause last month in terms of what an ideal redistricting process looks like. Compactness, contiguity, and removing partisan data from the redistricting process. Now, there were also some interesting insights into how fair redistricting can sometimes increase the partisan bent of a given district and create the type of safe seat redistricting reform is looking to avoid. And an example is factoring districts around communities of interest who will typically vote in a similar manner. And I don't know if this is necessarily a terrible thing, but it can appear on its face to be gerrymandering of another sort. Now, you can also imagine my dismay when Mitch brought up the fact that proportional representation would require a constitutional amendment and based on the fact the House of Representatives can write laws that override state laws around elections and redistricting, I know he has a point. And this might sound difficult, but here is the thing. In the 20th century, a bunch of men ratified an amendment giving women the right to vote. It seemed impossible. A group of former Confederate states ratified an amendment that prohibited practices they used to prevent African Americans from voting. I mean, we prohibited booze, for Christ's sakes. And what all of these things have in common is that ordinary people made their voices heard. I mean, maybe the booze thing was a bad idea, but that out of the way, 
Like I said in the last episode, there are more people disenchanted with the two-party system than there are hyper-partisan folks, and we need a government that works for them, not just the parties in power. And that number is around 60%. So we're not all that far from a supermajority now, are we? Now, next week, we're sticking in North Carolina and speaking with Jeff Gregory, Constitution Party candidate for North Carolina's 5th Congressional District, which is not shaped like a snake. We talk a lot about snakes on this show, huh? In the conversation, I talk with Jeff about his platform and talk about how he got to where he was politically. It is a very interesting path that happens to mirror another guest we have for this month who falls far, far, far on the left. So check it out. As always, music is courtesy of Krellertak. YDHTY is produced in North Carolina by the big Gino Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Bye-bye.